Welcome to Season 3 of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekiswolf. Oh, man. You know, you know, I was talking to my daughter today, and her name's Simone, and she was telling me about graduation for some of her friends in high school and how like school is just wildly different right now. And then I was starting to think about kind of what other kinds of schools, universities, colleges are being impacted in a negative way in a challenging way right now. And like the list is enormous, but the story in education isn't about just things that are challenged right now. There's actually some really nice stories about innovation that are happening in the world of education right now. And today we spoke to Austin Allred. Austin is the founder of Lambda School. Now, Lambda has generated quite a bit of controversy, both in the tech world, the non-tech world, et cetera, for their, their model, which essentially takes a percentage of their students' income after they graduate based on a developer job that they get. And so this has generated some press, but Notably, you know, Austin is also a controversial tweeter, which we addressed during this interview. And we learned that, you know, there is nuance to, uh, you know, uh, the personality and how he thinks about tweeting. I constantly am surprised when we have a chance to meet someone who we've got a very real expectation about who they are because of how we interpret what they do when they're on a place like Twitter. Austin's got a really fascinating business. I think it sounds pretty logical why Lambda exists when you start to talk to Austin about it. And the guy's pretty thoughtful on top of it all. So it, there's a kind of interesting juxtaposition about how we interpret people showing up and the businesses that they're part of and maybe what they are like in real life. Definitely. Um, we hope you enjoy today's interview and, uh, and with the amount of Twitter consumption that we're, that we're doing in this, this day and age, like, you know, one of the takeaways that we would hope is uh, there are people behind the tweets always. People behind the tweets always. I love that. Enjoy. Austin, thank you for joining the show today. We appreciate having you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, where are you right now? Right now, I am in a little farming town in rural Utah. Uh, like, can you describe geographically Utah and where a little farming town in Utah actually might be? Yeah, so if you've got Utah, um, you've got kind of Salt Lake City toward the northern-ish part of Utah. And then down in southern Utah, you have kind of the national parks. And then right in between the two. Uh, so I'm probably two and a half hours from Salt Lake City to the southeast. So if you were to put a pin right in the center of Utah, that's right where I'm at. Ooh, I bet it's beautiful. It is. It's a... I mean, it's a different kind of beauty. It's not lush green. It's more deserty, um, but it's but we we like it here. It's been fun. Yeah. Hey, wait. You lived in the Bay Area, but you you're not a native to the Bay Area, is that right? No, I moved to the Bay Area a few years ago, but but not a native. No. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Utah also? Uh, yeah, I grew up in Utah. Not so. Right now, I'm kind of on my in-laws' farms. This is where my wife grew up, and I grew up. Uh, not too far south of Salt Lake. So I grew up in, in the city of Utah. Okay. So <laughs> you, you were, you're not a farmer growing up? No, no, very much not. And still remain not a farmer to this day. Yeah. Just a gentleman farmer. Just to look at the sheep and stuff. 
Yeah, they 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 do hay, um, wow. but. That's but great yeah. Great for the allergies, I hear. Hey, as you were growing up in Utah, <laughs> right? did you ever say, I think uh, I want to live in the Bay Area, and so I'm going to kind of figure out what's necessary for me to go from Utah to move to the Bay Area? Was that ever a part of your thought process? Yeah, basically. Um, I mean, when I, uh, when I started going to college, I, that was my plan. I'd already, you know, I'd, I'd been buying and selling stuff on the Internet since eBay, you know, the early days of eBay, I had one of the first PayPal accounts. Um, so I, I already kind of lived in Silicon Valley, just not geographically and, uh, knew that that's where I would end up eventually. Um, but getting there was not as simple as it would have been for some other folks. I would assume. What do you mean mean buying and selling? Sorry, Sorry, Zanil. We're going to, we're going to, uh, reinstate the talk over each other fine of a dollar. And I think I just owed the first dollar in this conversation. <laughs> Sorry about this, Neil. Um, could I ask the one question? I was really curious, Austin. What was buying and selling stuff online? What do you mean by that? Do you like selling t- sneakers, uh, computer equipment, all kinds of stuff? Yeah, so I found kind of a, a hack on eBay search engine that if you just search for iPod, um, so it was, you know usually Apple products way in the early days. So think about the first iPods. Uh, if you just search for iPod, it would be like, hey, there are, you know, 100 million results. You need to narrow your search. Um, but when you listed a product, if you just listed it as iPod, it wouldn't tell you, hey, you need to add more keywords. Um, so there were a bunch of people that would just list their iPod as just iPod. So I basically had a three-page long search that was iPod, and then I would minus out all of the other words. So I'd find only the listings that just said iPod. Um, you usually buy those for pretty cheap. And so I would buy those and sell them. So, uh, so Austin, um, uh, we are, we are recording this. This is only our second remote podcast. So that is why you're hearing us, you know, talk over each other. We're having to adapt post pandemic and all of your, uh, you know, talk about selling stuff online, you know, sort of reminds me of the situation we're currently in e-commerce booming. What is what are some of your reflections right now uh, on you know the situation that we're facing in the world? You are prolific on this about Twitter, but give us like three or four takeaways right now, like your hot takes. Oh man, hot takes. Um, let's see. So first, I think we're still underestimating the economic impact um, of you know the type of unemployment that we'll see and the type of businesses that will be affected. Um, Two, um, it's created this kind of weird, you know, network of winners and losers that is somewhat random. Um, but it, I think it will push more activity online. Um, I just got finished reading, uh, ready player one. And if you've read that, it's kind of a, about a, a kid who basically lives in a virtual world. Um, and I'm recognizing that, you know, I go home to my family, but most everything that I do from a business standpoint, you know, all of our students are remote, all of our employees are remote. Um, it's, it's becoming more and more possible to just live entirely within that virtual world and have less interaction with, uh, real life, which is, uh, fascinating. And I think we'll only hasten that shift. Um, is anybody making the uh, is anybody making those outfits that you can wear yet? Like Ready Player One. Like no, a, I'd, I'd love that. I don't. I don't even have an Oculus, and I think that's kind of a prerequisite before you get haptic gloves or 
haptic suits. You have to, well, <laughs> to have real VR. Not just well on our way to living out Wally. That could be it. I mean, you can, you can, you can door dash ice cream and sit in your chair and work online. Yeah, that's totally possible. Austin, you, we have to talk about Lambda. So um, for a lot of our listeners out there, um, you know, you've, you've come up a lot. Lambda's come up a lot. What I'm hoping is you can just provide a basic explanation of the work that you're doing at Lambda uh, and, you know, just what what is an ISA? Why is it the future of education? And, you know, anything else you can share about, you know, your vision for um, for Lambda? Yeah, so you know, when we first started Lambda, um, we were saying, "Hey, let's let's put a really, really good code school online." Um, there are a couple of code schools um, that were online, but I didn't feel like they were very high quality. So it was either you, you go to San Francisco and then you can really learn to code, or you can do this kind of hacky, janky stuff online. But it, there wasn't like a true immersive experience that was happening online. Um, so originally, we were no different than any, uh, any other code school. You know, three months long, you pay us $10,000 up front. Uh, we started talking to the people that were interested in Lambda School and realized that the main thing holding them back uh, was really the financial piece. Um, so we could have, you know, figured out how to get loans, but the risk associated with those loans was so much that, you know, I don't want to take out a $15,000 loan and owe 10% on it if I'm only making minimum wage. That's, in, in a funny way, that's life-altering. That's life-ending financially. Um, so, you know, I'd come from, I've worked as a lending company most recently, and it makes you think, like, why, why are we putting all of the risk on the backs of the students? You know, if I'm a school and I'm saying, hey, I can help you get a job that pays X, um, why do I get paid if I'm unsuccessful in doing so? And of course, there's, you know, the, the student has responsibility and the school has responsibility. In order for it to work out, both have to, to do their part. Um, but that's basically what an ISA is. It, it, instead of uh, traditional loan, uh, so with Lambda School's income share agreement, you pay back only if you end up with a job that pays you 50K or more. And if not, then you don't pay anything. Um, and there's a little more nuance that goes into it than that, but what it really does is it lets the school bet on the student instead of the other way around. Got it. And, uh, you know, re really intriguing, pretty, uh, would you call the model controversial at all? And, uh, you know, I only asked, I was just kind of you know, curious, what is, what are the reactions that you're on both ends of the spectrum about the model? Yeah, I think it's fair to say it's controversial. I think the average person says, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Why, you know, why are we sending government dollars to universities no matter what they do um, and saddling students with all the debt no matter what happens? Like the, um, it clearly aligns incentives in a way that any other mechanism doesn't really. Um, and the, the, the negative side is, you know, just kind of their students do owe money at the end of the day if they're successful. Um, and, you know, the, the most common negative argument is, hey, that's indentured servitude. But it's really, I, you know, I'll try to steel man that argument a little bit before I dismiss it. Um, like the, the criticism is that it's tied to a percentage of income and that feels vaguely similar to indentured servitude. The huge difference is that, A, 
it's not, we don't force you to work anywhere. We don't force you to do anything. It's just, it's, you know, more similar to a loan in that sense where it's just a financial obligation. The same way you sign a contract with your cable company when you want internet or your phone company when you want phone service. It's just a, an agreement to, to repay. Um, and if you pay it all off or, you know, and, and it's capped too. So for, in our instance, if you pay $30,000, the entire thing goes away or, and this is something that the critics don't like to uh, remember, if you don't get a job that pays more than 50K and five years of deferment elapses, the entire thing goes to zero and you don't owe anything. So in my mind, very much unlike indentured servitude. So yeah. that is the, that's the criticism. You know, I, I've, I've certainly so, heard some feedback from kind of broader in the industry, at least I've watched it coming in saying, eh, here's some maybe pitfalls. I'm really curious about the, let's call it the education industry generally. Like, are there specific schools or maybe organizations that are looking to you as a driver for change in the way that they work right now? Like, is there a flip side to maybe some of the detractors that maybe we see on places like Twitter that, that you can talk about? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think we pretty quickly became leaders in the, I'll call it vocational education industry. Um, to the point that, you know, if we change text on our website, it would, you know, we could watch that flow through a dozen other, you know, schools pretty quickly. Mm. Um, so the vocational schools are pretty quick to adapt. And I think we've kind of forced the ISA model on the industry. It's, it's an order magnitude more difficult to make work as a school. Um, you are carrying risk that you wouldn't have carried otherwise. You are managing a finance piece that you wouldn't have managed otherwise. Um, so it's much, much more difficult to make it work as a school, especially in um, a, an environment that's more uncertain, like the environment we're in now. Everybody would just prefer to, you know, collect checks and that's it. Um, so I think we've kind of forced the industry to take more risk on than they would have otherwise, uh, which I think is, you know, at the end, that's the point of capitalism. That's the point of competition. And the, the students went out at the end of the day, but now it's a matter of who can make it work and who can make it work the best so that the terms are most favorable to the students. So the students will select those ISAs. So it creates a very interesting dynamic where the schools that perform the best have the best rates and the schools that have the best rates will get the best students. And yeah. uh, it creates a little bit of a cycle that way. Um, so I have, I have so many questions and one is a revenue model question and one is just a, the role of traditional education question. So on the revenue model side, so, um, you know, this, the model sounds like it works extremely well, both for the student and you know, potentially for the employer, particularly in a good hiring market. But what about a situation like we're facing now? Um, would, would that be bad for, uh, you know, Lambda in the sense that you just people aren't hiring or unable to pay out the, you know, the ISA in full to Lambda? Is that, so I'll, I'll start with that and then I'll ask the second question. Yeah. And so we have to be much more cognizant of hiring markets than the average school would. And if there are shifts in the market, we try to be ahead of those shifts and uh, move students to where people are hiring. So for example, we've got um, an entire team that just kind of monitors the hiring landscape. And, you know, in the past couple of months, we used to have a bunch of students go work at 
logistics companies or you know trucking companies have been hit a little bit. Um, ex- event and experience companies have been hit, and we've shifted all of all of that sh- hiring has shifted more toward uh, healthcare, education, uh, some logistics still, different kind of logistics, financial services. Um, so we have a team that keeps tabs on that and helps direct students to where they ought to be. So at a, at a macro scale, you know, what we are trying to build is kind of the, the economic clearinghouse of capitalism. So if, you know, if I'm an 18 year old that doesn't know what I ought to do, what I should be presented with are kind of a, you know, here's a menu of options. Here's what you're really well suited for. Um, and you know that, you know, here are the outcomes and the expectations and the repayment tied to each of those outcomes. But that's not what we provide, you know, 18-year-olds right now. Right now, we say, hey, go to the best university you can, study what you love, and we're all just going to hope and pray that it works out on the other side. And when it does, that's awesome. Um, but as the growing student debt shows us, oftentimes it's not working out, and it's not working out at rates that were unprecedented for our parents' generation. So we're taking bad advice and getting saddled with bad debt and the, you know, the the second order effects of that are pretty bad for everybody. Um, so I, I think there, it's just kind of a missing piece of capitalism, something that will tell you where you ought to go, where you ought to work and help you get there. It's kind of crazy how little assistance somebody has in that regard. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think um, I am obviously following the collapse of, you know, many of our, our nation's universities in the face of this pandemic. However, um, what would you say to someone who says, and so I don't think things will totally fall apart. So part of the value in university is, isn't it that, you know, sort of you see it in the VC world, you've raised a bunch of VC money, but Stanford, Harvard networks are, are so valuable and impregnable in some ways, not to mention the, the in-person experience and developing social and, you know, quote unquote life skills and being around people your age who can challenge your views, et cetera. What would you say is, you know, like your, your, your thoughts on that, because it isn't part of that, you know, your ability to be a CEO of a company, your ability to deal with people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so first, you know, I'm not worried about Stanford and Harvard. They're going to be just fine. Um, the schools that are going to be hit the most in this are, you know, we're already anticipating some of this because there are fewer high school seniors graduating than there have been in the past several years. So, So we knew there there is going to be pain already, um, but obviously COVID-19 and the coronavirus epidemic will exacerbate that significantly. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not a college graduate, so I can't speak for all of it, but I think what will happen more broadly is kind of an unbundling of education. So the university education is this big bundle of, you know, you have the you have the credentialing aspect, you have the educational aspect, you have the social aspect, you have the party aspect, you have the sports aspect, and there are you know, all these different things put together in this big package. Um, what Lambda School said is specifically, you know, for some students, that package isn't ideal. And so we're going to break off just the job training piece of that, just the part that helps you get a job. And we're not going to do any of the other stuff. We're not going to have a sports team. Um, we'll have some social events, but it's not going to be the, you know, you go live in a dorm and hang out with all your buddies and, um, you know, we'll still have networking, but it'll, it'll be different. It'll be very, very job focused. Um, 
And I would imagine you'll, uh, you'll see that in other aspects too. I don't know how yet. Um, but I think, you know, one of the reasons I dropped out of college is because the majority of the things that they offered and that I was paying for, I actually didn't need or care for. Um, so that's, obviously that's just my experience, but I, if I were trying to predict the future, I'd predict further unbundling of the higher education system. Yeah. I sit on the board of a little liberal arts college in Southern California, and uh, I, I love it. It's my alma mater, Whittier College. Part of what um, has always been interesting and important and exciting about the college experience is the idea that you can learn about a lot of different disciplines the benefit and the value for somebody like me is that it provided kind of system thinking as a rigor and that's been valuable for me professionally. I'm really curious. I, I certainly appreciate the idea of the unbundling, but I'm really curious how you think about what liberal arts has done culturally, globally, and maybe it's relationship into, or the challenges that we're going to see as we start to unbundle higher education, which I don't think is wrong by the way. But I'm really curious about that, kind of your thought as an entrepreneur who's creating a business that is starting to unbundle part of the educational experience. Yeah, so I think, you know, if you look at kind of traditional disruption theory in the Clay Christensen vein, it, it really is a promise that, you know, the, the good that replaces, that disrupts, um, is not superior in every way. Um, and I don't think Lambda School is superior in the sense of, I mean, we, we definitely focus a lot on systems thinking, but there, there's so, something abstract that liberal, liberal arts will, colleges will provide that we just don't. Um, and so what I think has to happen, I, I do see the value in that. And I, you know, I consider myself as someone who is very interested in systems thinking and in uh, the arts, I read more than, you know, my, I have family members with liberal arts degrees and I read way more than any of them. Um, and that's not a knock on them. That's just to say, I think that we will either, you know, those liberal, liberal arts institutions will continue to provide value to the people who opt for that, which is the most likely option. Um, or you will be able to get the same value in other ways. Um, and I, I don't know what that is. If I you know, knew how to provide a true systems thinking you know, education, I might be playing with adding something like that into Lambda School. But um, I'm pretty convinced that over time, something will develop that provides a similar experience at a lower price point and may not provide everything. Or, mm -hmm. or you know, the liberal arts institutions will continue to grow and thrive. Um, I think, you know, it's no secret that there's going to be a painful period of the next 48 months. Um, but I don't know that I can predict that, you know, liberal, liberal arts colleges will cease to exist four years from now. I think that would be a, an unwise prediction. Yeah. I think that there's something What's really pretty fascinating about the idea of uh, kind of unbundling first and then bundling back together. Right? It seems like there's a very natural potential relationship of what you do into maybe a traditional liberal arts experience. And maybe that's a contemplation for you as you think about future product. Um, but that feels really interesting. Sunil, sorry, I stepped on top of you. $2. No, I, I was just going to say, uh, you know, we, we kind of talked a, for a second about sports. And 
Um, I, I know that uh, for for many of us, it's just a social activity. I was a college athlete. Yasha was a was a college athlete as well. Uh, but it is a huge revenue source for these universities, and so I, you always get the question: Well, why is the football coach the highest paid state employee in every of the every one of these states? Well, it's because no single employee swings state revenue as much as the college football coach, right? And so like you get a program like Ohio state, which generates 200 million of football revenue annually, um, or Penn state is probably in that neighborhood. UC Berkeley is certainly up there. You know, that, what, what are your thoughts on, on sports in general, Austin? Like, I'm just curious because how will, you know, universities replace this revenue or is it just one of those things where it's going to, you know, I, you know, go away or you know, I, I, any thoughts on this? Appreciate it. Yes. Uh, the short answer is I have no idea. Um, I could, my thesis would be, you know, there's been, there's been some level of pressure around athletes being paid. I mean, the, you know, the flip side of that argument is, uh, you know, it's awesome that the students in Penn state are, getting a free education, but is that really in line with the value that they're providing? And, is, you know, how should that revenue be distributed? Certainly some should be to the coach. I don't think anybody would argue that, but um, I think it's going to be a more and more difficult argument as transparency increases that the students who bring in revenue shouldn't be paid or, uh, you know, have something in that realm. Um, so if I were to, you know, if I were trying to disrupt the NCAA, um, it would be something where a student is allowed to, you know, be paid some amount and start to, you know, strip students, star students away. The tricky thing there is, you know, there's such a strong network effect with NCAA um, in so many different ways. So I don't, I don't know how that plays out. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if this fall it will matter what anybody's preference is. I think it might just be there is no college football, but we'll see. I really like this bundling, unbundling concept that you talked about. I think that there's a lot of meaningful learnings that traditional educational institutions can kind of take away from a conversation like this. I'm really curious as you think about the kind of graduates from your school, um, what you have to do to help them and this is really specifically evolving your product so that they're not in the kind of way of what AI is going to start replacing from a technology perspective inside of businesses. Like, how do you think about future-proofing your students against AI replacing their work? Yeah, so, so the first, my first response to that is, you know, I think we need to move to a world where we stop thinking about higher education as something that happens before you're, you turn 22 and then never again. Um, so I think you know, we may, I don't think anybody 20 years ago would have predicted that the world looks just like it is today. And we can try to get really good at predicting, but I don't think we are going to be good enough at predicting that we will know, you know what is future-proof and what is not. Um, you know, you can make the argument that there's some trends and you can say, hey, we shouldn't be you know, training people to be truck drivers, but frankly, right. Well, until coronavirus hit, that was among the better careers that somebody could have. And until self-driving trucks are there, uh, that is something that is highly paid and highly needed. Um, so the way I think about it is kind of shortening the cycle. Um, and you think about it very differently. If college experience 
costs $200,000 and takes four years than if it costs $20,000 and takes a year or it costs, you know, $15,000 and takes six months. Um, so I think as the, uh, as the economy continues to increase its rate of change, which, um, you know, feels chaotic now, but I would imagine that chaos continues and increases into the future. Um, I could see a world where it's normal to go back to school for a couple of months every five or six years. Um, and that doesn't feel crazy to me at all. And I, so I would, you know, I think more in terms of that than how do I give you the one education that will get you through anything and everything for the rest of your life. Um, and more to, you know, how can we prepare you to, you know, weather some of that storm. And then if it's just a macroeconomic massive shift and none of us saw coming, make it so that it's not punitive to go back and study something else in the future. So, so Austin, we're having this discussion with you, by the way, I think the echo is removed from my, um, from my, uh, my sound now because I had my AirPods sitting like a few feet away from me and I didn't know you can, you can connect two devices simultaneously. I'm so irritated. So it goes. Um, <laughs> That's comedy. Size, uh, but I want to I want to pivot into a conversation about social media. So here we are having this conversation with you, Austin. You're an incredibly thoughtful guy. Of course, we all know uh, Tyler Willis, who's a close friend of, of mine for decades. And that's how Yash and I actually originally met. And he said great things about you. But to the casual observer who might just look at your social media presence, they might have different reactions. And so I've been fascinated by how you use social media. You know, you think about things in a clear and nuanced way, but social media is a free for all. Tell, tell us about how you use social media and what you might say to people who are like, wow, I, I want to hate unfollow that guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always curious when I meet somebody in person, the, the reaction is consistently, oh, wow, you're so different than you were on Twitter. Um, which I'm not sure how I feel about that. That's not my, like, I'm not, that's not my desired response. I'm not trying to spark controversy or be an asshole or anything like that. Um, Twitter honestly is just whatever I'm thinking that's top of mind. Um, I put out on Twitter. Um, and sometimes it's controversial. Sometimes it's divisive. Sometimes it's wrong. Um, but I, I try to limit my filter there to the extent that I can, because otherwise it just becomes this polished and rehearsed, you know, PR pitch. Um, and that's just not, not my style. Um, so I'm, I know you, you tell me if, if, you know, I'm tweeting something that is blatantly offensive. Certainly my comms team has had tweets that they've been frustrated with in the past. Um, but yeah, for me, I just feel offended. And so I, I certainly have not walked away from your Twitter, Twitter feed offended. That's not my personal response, but it's sort of like, you know, if you read something without context, it's, it's just, it's like, Oh, okay. Does, does he really think that? Or was it just like you said, something top of mind? Was it thought about? Was it, and it sounds like the answer is no, it's just whatever is top of mind at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, that's, that's the reality for me. I can't speak for any other Twitter users or, you know, and um, certainly I have a, 
I have a you know PR and comms team that uh, gets varying levels of nervous depending on what I'm tweeting at a, at a given time. Um, but I think what you know wins out at the end of the day is like true authenticity. Um, so it may rub people the wrong way sub- sometimes, um, but just like trying to be, you know, quick and top of mind and being willing to make mistakes, I think is critical on Twitter. I mean, you look at like who grows their following the fastest and it's not people, it, it's not people who are well rehearsed or eloquent to say the least. I mean, it's, <laughs> It's, it's Elon Musk and it's Donald Trump. And sometimes they'll tweet stupid things. Uh, well, I'll keep politics out of this, but I think uh, it's not its not even political to say that sometimes Trump tweets just crazy stuff. Um, and Elon will, you know, tweet memes as much as he'll, and then he'll follow up his tweet about a meme with, you know, the composition of a rocket engine. Um, and so I think that's, for me, that's what I actually want. I appreciate when Elon tweets ridiculous memes. Um, I think it's, I can't imagine that it's crazy to me that he still gets away with that being as rich and powerful and influential as he is. But I, I find it a little bit endearing. Um, and even knowing that like, you know, Elon is like a very flawed dude that sometimes will say stupid stuff. Um, that doesn't bother me the way it bothers some other people. Some people, I'm sure, are very, very put off by it. Well, I know we said that we don't break news, um, but I thought it would be good for us to talk about the fact that um, we just heard that Grimes is actually the person that writes all of his tweets. I'm totally kidding. Oh, really? No, I'm teasing. Completely teasing. <laughs> but here, here's the thing, though. Like, where do you, where do you find your outer limits? Like, where where are the where are the barriers that you put up for yourself in social media on Twitter in particular? Is there things that are off limits? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, there are things that, I I mean, Twitter is, Twitter is a medium that is fundamentally lacking nuance. Um, so anything that would get you into trouble if there isn't nuance, I have learned the hard way to keep off of Twitter. Um, so it's basically just all of the controversial topics that come to mind. Um, you know, I, I avoid politics almost entirely unless it's very, very neutral. I avoid, you know, kind of current events. Think about traditional discussions of power and privilege and race and gender and all the things that are just tricky. Um, I, I tend to avoid, uh, not because I well, some I don't have opinions on, frankly, or I haven't thought deeply enough. I've actually learned to, you know, people ask me questions a lot on Twitter. Um, I've learned that one of my most effective responses is like, you know, I've never really thought about that and I don't have a clue. Um, just being honest and open about when that's true. Um, it surprises people. Uh, you, you're usually just supposed to have a, have an opinion and fight and I don't always care to. Um, but yeah, I think there are very important and nuanced discussions. And you know, one of my, me and Paul Graham email back and forth a lot, and he's got a million plus Twitter followers. And I've only got hundred something thousand. Um, but his advice to me was, if you have something that requires nuance to say, put it in an essay. Don't tweet it. Um, because if you need the nuance, 
um, a the the essay format is just not as susceptible to people taking what you're saying out of context, um, which is I think that's what's happening on Twitter probably forty percent of the time. Um, and then B the people who just want to like have a quick flippant reaction to something and not study it out aren't going to read the essay in the first place. So if it's not you know chopped up for them in a quick soundbite, they won't care to read it. Um, and I've noticed, you know, people say stuff about Lambda School that, you know, there's a New York Times article about us. Some of the response was like, okay, you're literally only reading the title. You're not, you didn't read the article, which is fine. Um, and you have a lot of opinions. You're going to get a lot of retweets on it. But it's also not going to matter at the end of the day because you're not actually influencing anybody's opinion. It's just, you know, people are looking for something that confirms their priors and they're going to hit retweet and then it's just going to go off into the ether and be done. Um, so I think another thing that I've learned the hard way is I don't have to correct everybody who's wrong, even if it's just they're factually incorrect. And then when I do correct someone who's just factually incorrect, it can come off as condescending or rude or whatever else, even when I'm actually just trying to correct a misperception. So that's, that's, that's some other stuff I've learned, the, the slow and hard way. We've got a couple more questions and then we want to, we want to, we want to close out with, uh, with, I know Yasha has, has one or two, but this is a really important point that you're talking about, which is the, the relationship between tech and journalism right now. I mean, it is absurdly bad. And I feel personally a little bit torn by this. So I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm a multiple time founder. I've raised VC money. Um, and you know, I've been on the negative end of press coverage before, um, and it's no fun. Now on the other side of it, we've had journalists on this podcast. I've been a writer. I owned a San Francisco based publication called the bold italic, uh, for a few years. Um, talk about the state of tech versus journalism right now. And is there a path to things getting better? Uh, I'll use the response that I referred to earlier that is, I don't know. Um, but this is something I've thought a lot about, not, um, not thought about. I think what we're watching is, I mean, a lot of news publications are going to die in the next six months. I don't see the revenues are declining like crazy. The employee bases are unionizing and becoming relatively more expensive. And it's, it's there's a collision course that um and I don't see how anybody's going to pull out of it. Um especially think about, you know, the traditional VC backed journalism companies. I think they're in for a world of hurt. Um and I think some of the animosity has toward tech has come from the fact that news media views tech as the thing that is killing their revenue source. And, you know, things used to be awesome if you were a journalist. Um, and they're not anymore. It's a brutal, you know, I actually started a news company. Not many people realize that. Um, I started a news fact-checking company where the idea was to crowdsource some of the journalism that isn't going to happen in the future because it's just too expensive. Um, and so I, I love journalism and I love very well done journalism. And the writers today are put in a position where they just can't. I mean, you, you know, if you're, if you're writing for 
you know, one of the big VC backed tech publications today, you have to pump out a couple articles a day at 600 words each. And how can you possibly do that? Well, you just can't. Um, and so I think what it's turned into is, you know, incentives are what matter the most at the end of the day. And if your incentives are to push something out as quickly as you can, that will get as many clicks as you can, um, you, you respond to those incentives. Um, so I'm, you know, I have to be careful because there's been some negative criticism. There's been some negative press about Lambda School that's been totally fair. And there's been some that's just fundamentally factually incorrect. Um, and so, so here think, on that note, you know, I'm, I'm curious because we do hear about the, the negative stuff on Twitter and all of that. But if we had to rephrase it and say, hey, you know, here are two or three journalists that Austin respects. Who would you point to right now who you think is doing a good job? Um, I think Alex Conrad at Forbes is doing a really good job. Um, I mean, I, I don't, this is a little bit different, but Ben, oh, geez, what's his last name? Shutakari, help me out. Ben Thompson. Uh, ben Thompson, yeah. Um, uh, Shutakari does a phenomenal job. Um, I'm starting to, I'm very interested in kind of the sub stack or athletic model where it's, um, you know, subscriber, uh, supported as opposed to advertising supported. I just don't know how advertising supported publications will make it. Uh, Kate Clark of the information has, you know, she reported an article about Lambda school that I didn't love, but it was accurate. Um, and she did her work. And I can't say that for everybody who's reported about Lambda School. Um, so yeah, so, so that, that's good. I mean, so um, you know, we are kind of breaking news in a way, which is there is a nuanced view of this, and we all know this, and we know that you're a nuanced and thoughtful guy. Uh, but you know, it is there are people doing good work out there, and there are others that I mean, so it's just. It's just, you know, um, not obvious on Twitter all the time because it appears as if the two sides are sort of pitted against each other with no path. And one of these days we got to get you on a panel to, uh, with some of the, with some of these journalists when, when in-person meetings are a thing, thing again, we want to sit you down with, with a few folks and see if there's a path forward. That's something I'm really interested in doing at some point. Yeah. I don't, again, I don't know what that is. Like, I don't know how, and yeah, I, I empathize with, the news publications, because they're just in a really crappy spot right now. Um, and I think their response is going to be to lash out at tech even harder um, because they view Facebook and Google as the things that have destroyed the revenue model. And, you know, so tech killed journalism. Um, and I'm, I don't think that's true, but I'm empathetic to it. And it, it really sucks. I mean, I, you know, when I ran a news company, there the journalists that we could hire for not as much as they should be making in another world was just crazy. And people who have dedicated their entire lives to news and to journalism and who truly love and value truth, the business model just fell out from under them. Um, and what used to be a well-paying pension six figure job 30 years ago is minimum wage today. And that sucks. Um, so I don't know what the response is there, but I, I empathize. So, um, we're going to steer back into social media 
for a second. I want to seed you with a question. Uh, the question is on the social networks that you spend your time and maybe like really specifically, let's just talk about Twitter. I want to know who the recommendations are that you have for our followers to listen to. Oh, I actually have a, a um, if you go to my Twitter list, I have a list that's called non-obvious. Um, and so if you follow tech Twitter, for example, there's just this, you're going to constantly be hit with the same people again and again and again. Um, so I've tried over time to curate that list to a few people who are very thoughtful and very nuanced and not quite as popular. Um, so a couple of people that come to mind, uh, Mason Hartman, who's at WebDev Mason, I think it's just, I mean, she's a very gifted writer. She's intentionally divisive, um, which I think works well on Twitter um, and has a lot of nuanced thoughts. Uh, Zach Cantor is another one. Uh, Z-A-C-K-K-A-N-T-E-R. Um, if you want to follow more for kind of the fights, I, I really like Mike Solana, M-I-C-S-O-L-A-N-A. Um, those are, there, there's a certain threshold of fame after which people tend to t- tweet less. Um, but those guys are all under that threshold. They're influential enough, but also still under that threshold that they know people and they are having interesting conversations and they're still free to tweet about them. Um, so that's kind of the sweet spot. Ooh, that's like the home run answer for the question. Thank you for all of those recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. Austin, uh, we, we, uh, we have to ask you one more question. So can you get Yasha and I into clubhouse or what's the deal? Like, can you just score us a couple of <laughs> invites, please? Let's- uh, probably. <laughs> there you go. That's a, a like uh, semi-committal, which we no, appreciate. That was, not a, that was not a condition of this, uh, of this interview. I want to make it uh, clear to our, to our listeners. What's it, what's it like on there is actually what I just really wanted to ask and close out. Is it, you know, is it, do you think that it's going to be a big thing? Is it going to remain a, a kind of close set of people? What's the, what's the deal there? Yeah. So I don't, know what number user I was. I imagine I was relatively early. I just got a random link and somebody said, Hey, you should check this out. Um, it felt very much like early Twitter in the early days where everyone was figuring it out. You'd spend 60% of the time talking about clubhouse. So, so what clubhouse is, it's basically, um, a voice only kind of think about, I mean, it's basically this, but, you know, we would be having this conversation more, you know, less scheduled, just you, know, you hop into a room and then anybody who's interested can jump in and then you can add them to be a speaker or, you know, kind of demote them to be a listener or kind of move it back and forth. Whoever, whoever created the room controls it. Um, so it's one of those things that's largely a, you know, a matter of who you're in there with. So in the early days, you know, a couple of my favorite conversations were, you know, Naval just talking about, you know, he's talking to different epidemiologists and what the impact of coronavirus is going to be and what the um, responses are. And so he's just having a conversation, but you know, it's a conversation that you wouldn't be able to listen to otherwise. My all-time favorite day on Twitter was when uh, Mark Andreessen uh, hopped on there uh, with a, an anonymous avatar and 
Ian, Mike Solana and Mason Hartman, who are a couple of people that I recommended following were having a conversation and it, it tends to get very meta on there. Um, so they were talking about consciousness and history and what history means and if it's accurate or if we're, our perception of history is so skewed that it doesn't mean anything at all. Um, consciousness, if there is such a thing as the inner self or if studies show that we should all stop wasting our time meditating and who we are is just a bundle of memories and the memories are skewed because we remember things how we want to remember them. Um, and really it's just, I mean, any, anytime you can listen to Mark and Drayson talk about books and book recommendations, that's a good time. Um, sometimes it's more inane, um, than that, but it, that's the way I describe it is like, imagine if you could just peer into the private phone call between, you know, Mark Andreessen and Mason Hartman. It's, it's a pretty cool thing to, to watch. Well, we're well, really Austin, excited about getting great. that invite, right? It's <laughs> yeah, $3. Yeah, it's only, each other again. only $3. I can keep doing this. I'm not the person that accepts the, or, you know, the, it's basically a Google form that you fill out and then you wait. Um, so I, I can't promise anything, but I can get you the form for sure. No, no, we, 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 I filled out my form weeks ago. I'm still, I'm still, I'm still in wait. Actually, from Tyler too. But you know, if if you're listening, Paul, uh, I don't know you, but make it happen. <laughs> Austin, this has been a great conversation. We appreciate you taking time out of your day, uh, especially kind of in the middle of all the stuff that everybody's dealing with right now. So we hope you have a great rest of the afternoon and appreciate the time. Yeah, happy to chat. This was fun. Thanks, guys. This was great. Thank you. Do you ever think you would talk to an entrepreneur in Utah that's got a kind of big VC pack business that's grown like gangbusters right now? Well, you know, we've, we've definitely had some interesting guests uh, on the show and really nothing surprises me right now in the, uh, in the age of the pandemic. I mean, he is, you know, of course was in San Francisco and then moved back to Utah. But I think after this, people are just going to live wherever they want. Yeah, I think living wherever you want, working wherever you want, going to school whenever you want are all really interesting themes that came out of this conversation today. Um, pretty intriguing. Definitely. Um, you know, I uh, I don't know if you're going to now listen to this and, and happen to move to Utah, uh, Yasha, but, <laughs> but if you do, I guess we can just keep doing this remotely. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, I've been locked down in my house. You've been locked down in your house. The company that I work for has gone completely virtual as of the ones that you've been a part of too. So it's a, it's a pretty fascinating learning time right now. I enjoy this conversation a lot. I also just really love doing this podcast with you, Sunil. I love it so much that I want to make sure the one ask that we have for the people that listen to this podcast is super clear. What's that one ask? That ask is to, if you uh, are on your favorite podcast platform, leave us a five-star review or whatever review that we, that we deserve. Yeah. Make sure you, you rated it as well. It helps other people find the podcast. Thanks for listening today.